Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Good morning. Good on this thing? All right, cool. Uh, I'm glad that you guys are here this morning, and I am glad to be here. Uh, and yeah, uh, we're going to be in uh, the book of Exodus this morning. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a passage for you, then I'm going to kind of give some background of how we got up to this passage, and then we'll sit in it for, for a little bit. Okay, so let me, um, well, Joel just prayed, but let me pray again. Probably we can't do that enough, probably. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the morning, for your presence. Uh, Thank you that you do not operate on time changes, that you are timeless and you are always, uh, your your promise of blessing is to be with your people, and we are grateful for that. And uh, I pray that this morning is... um, nourishing and encouraging to our souls uh, if there is um, anything that is hindering us from seeking you. I pray that you would meet us there and, uh, uh, yeah, that you would call us to trust and renewed faith in, uh, in all that you have accomplished and all that you are. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> all right. Uh, Exodus 34 Let me read this for you. It's a fairly well-known and oft-repeated passage in in the Bible. Uh, In fact, some of the brief descriptions uh, in this Bible, uh, in this passage of who God is, are the most often uh, repeated throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. So let me read this, uh, and then we'll we'll, uh, dive into it. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, stood with Moses there. He's hidden in the cleft of the rock, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. God himself proclaimed his name. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, The other day, I watched uh, Gladiator again, if you remember that movie. I don't even want to know how old it is. Yeah, I don't even want to know how old it is, because every time I find out how old movies are, I'm like, really? Um, But uh, it's on one of the streaming services that we're either paying for or have a free trial that I've forgotten to delete. And basically, the story of Gladiator, if you don't remember, the story of Gladiator, it's a completely made-up, ahistorical setting. talking about the commander of the Roman armies uh, whose family is murdered by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, who he also 
uh, killed his own father who was the emperor so that he could become emperor. And uh, Russell Crowe was also supposed to be killed in that movie, but he got away, but he found himself as a slave. And then he, he became, he was such a good warrior, uh, he became the gladiator and eventually he was good enough to find himself on the main stage at the Colosseum. Uh, before the emperor, where he performed so well and so gloriously that the emperor himself wanted to come down and congratulate him and, uh, and have all of Rome know the name of this fierce warrior, this gladiator. And so uh, he tells Russell Crowe to take his helmet off and to reveal to, to the masses and the crowds his identity. And his, and, his, and his response is powerful as he takes his helmet off and he says, My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legion, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. That's quite a name. As we've been spending a lot of time looking at how God has made himself known and the mission that God has called his people to and all that's involved in that, uh, we see that in Genesis, uh, after multiple failed attempts to get going with this uh, creation and man's response to God in Genesis 11, uh, right after the flood, we see this group of people who begin to build a city to their own glory, and God frustrates their plans and sends them to the ends of the earth. But then in Genesis 12, right after that, God forms and fashions a people to go after them, to go to the ends of the earth and make known the goodness and mercy of the Lord. Uh, and they do that through the adventures of Genesis, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they wind up in Egypt, and they are enslaved in Egypt, and then God remembers his promise to his people, uh, he makes himself known to Moses. And if you remember, he tells Moses his name, I am. He says, I want you to go to my people and I want you to tell them that I am has sent you. Um, and, uh, and Moses goes and he delivers his people out of Egypt. God rescues him and then he gives them the law which if we've talked about this several times. The law is not just this list of rules. It's a covenant of life together. It reveals the, who God is. It reveals how God designed the world to be. It reveals, hey, I rescued you, and this is how you are to live in response to me. And the first law that he gives is, have no other gods before me. Now, this, is, this should be kind of a duh moment because he just destroyed systematically every god of Egypt. I am the most powerful god, to put another God before me is a bad idea. And then he says, secondly, and don't try to make me into one of like the other gods that you know. Don't, don't desecrate me by trying to make me uh, in an idolatrous form. Um, so the first thing the people of God do first thing they do is that they turn around. They get nervous that Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and they go, wait a minute, where's our God? So Aaron 
gathers all the jewelry. Ironically, probably a lot of that jewelry was handed to the people of Israel by the people of Egypt as God, like, made them wealthy as they were leaving. Aaron takes this, throws it in the fire and says, let's see what comes out. A calf. Here is your God that delivered you out of the hands of, out of Egypt. And they bowed down and they worshiped the golden calf. It's first, first shot out of the box. Um, my, my grandpa was, a, was uh, he was known as Dr. Clock. He had a shop here in, in, um, in St. Charles and, and one in North County, and he worked on clocks. And so he, his house was filled with all of these beautiful, ornate, historical cuckoo clocks. And, and, and what he would do is every grandchild that would, get, that would get married, he would say, you can walk through the house and pick out a clock. And so when we got married, we walked through, and we found this beautiful, ornate German clock. Um, and uh, it, it sat prominently in our little seminary apartment, and then, and then we, got, we moved back up here, and we had kids, and we put it on the front shelf, and, and I take some blame for this, for sure, but my, my little three-year-old son, God bless him, who just could not help himself but to mess and play with this clock, and we did it, like, we threatened lives, and we did all the appropriate disciplinary measures that you're supposed to do with children. Um, and, and it just didn't work. He could not keep his hands off him. So I did, I did, this was a pretty, I mean, I stayed like in control. And so I walked in one day and he was messing with the clock. And I got down on his level and I looked him in the eye and I said, son, you need to stop playing with this clock. We've talked about this before. Okay, dad, here's the thing. If you play with this clock again, you're going to be in trouble. Okay, dad. If you do this, you're going to get a swat on the leg. Now, everybody calm down. It was okay back then. Um, and, and I, and I, uh, and it, yeah, anyway. Um, so I said, do, do you understand me? Yes, Dad. What did I just tell you? Don't touch the clock. What happens if you touch the clock? I get spanking. Okay. So let's not touch the clock. As soon as I get done, literally as soon as I get done, he turns with both hands and grabs the clock. Now, listen, listen. If you don't have kids, you, I, listen, I listen to parenting advice. You don't have to have kids to give me parenting advice. I understand it. And somebody, if somebody you know, can say to me, well, you need to get down on their level and you need to talk to them. I get it. I'm like, yes, you're right. It's the five millionth time that you do that and then this happens that you lose it. But I didn't lose it. So I was like, all right. And part of, internally, I was chuckling. So I just gave him a little tap on the leg. It wasn't bad. And he started crying. He's like, why are you spanking me? This is, the, this is the people of God. This is precisely what happens. This is a picture of God's people right here. Don't make me into an idol. Okay, God. If you make me into an idol, it's going to go bad. Right, got it. Hey, we should make an idol. <laughs> this, is, this is Genesis 3. Don't eat the fruit. Got you. Okay, God. Got it? If you eat the fruit, it's going to go bad. You're going to die. Right. Got it. You're not going to die. Oh. All right. Well, let's eat the fruit. 
This is the corporate version of Genesis 3. This is Adam as a people. (laughs) And God is furious. His wrath is burning hot against his people. And Moses intercedes. Moses pleads to God on behalf of his people to withhold his wrath. God, why would you do this? Why would you deliver us out of Egypt, do all of this to bring us to this place, give us your law? Moses went up and he got, he got tablets, and it's funny because they say that God wrote on both the front and back side of the tablet. He used the full piece of paper, and, um, and he wrote his law on both sides, and God is telling Moses that, that this is happening back down there, and Moses is pleading, and he's like, don't, you remember, we're your people. Remember who you are. You love us. And God relents. He'd written all these laws and commands on the two tablets, and Moses is carrying these tablets down from meeting with God, and they hear singing, and they hear dancing, and they hear worshiping going on. And then Moses, as he, I don't know, comes over the hill or down the hill or whatever, he sees the people singing and dancing and singing worship songs and bowing down in worship to this golden calf. And then Moses' anger burns white hot with wrath and he throws the tablets down and he breaks them. And then Moses gives a little rebuke to the people. He uh, takes the idol, he throws it in the fire, he burns it down and then grinds it to a fine powder, puts it in their water and makes them drink it. I don't know if it's like the biblical, like putting soap in your mouth, if this is the equivalent. And then a chapter later, God go, Moses is going to go meet with God again because he has to get the tablets redone. Um, and uh, he's going to meet with God again. And God has basically said, I'm sending you from this place to the land that I promise you, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, you're going to go by yourself. I'm not going with you. I'm, I'm getting, you. You people are wearing on me. And Moses again pleads, if you're going to send us away from your presence, let us stay here because I don't want to go from your presence. And God says, okay. And then Moses says this famous passage right before here, show me your glory. And God says, I can't. It will kill you. You're not meant to see this. And he said, but I'll tell you what, I'll show you my back. I'm going to hide you in the cleft and I'll show you my back. And as the Lord passed by, God gives him his name. In this moment, after the people have rebelled, after Moses is pleading, he's not sure what is going to happen. Is God going to leave us? Is he going to remove his presence from us? God gives him his name once again, the Lord, the Lord. Now, when, in every time in Scripture when you see something repeated, it's usually generally for emphasis, right? Holy, holy, holy meaning God is really, really holy. And this is probably for emphasis as well, but there's another kind of hint here in the language that this also might be just for intimacy. When you look somebody in the eye, now here God is saying his own name. Um, so it's not direct, but when he's looking in, in the eye, looking it's like being present with Moses, Moses, my dear Moses, Yahweh, my dear friend, it is me, Yahweh. I am a God who is merciful and gracious, 
I am slow to anger. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. But by no means will, will I clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Soak that in for a second. That's a name. That's God giving his name. And there's probably one side that may jump out more than the other. You may be sitting there going, I like that first part. But this is the name of God. Let me read this one more time and just hear this. This is God giving his name. I am, I am. A God who is merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the name of the Lord. Um, I grew up in church. Um, some of you did, some of you didn't. Uh, there was a lot of things that were good, and I want to clarify that. Sometimes I have, I, sometimes I have a, a, a tainted view of, of uh, growing up in church and all my youth group issues and you know, all that stuff, but there was a lot of things that were good. I, I, um, uh, there was a number of life rhythms that were established for me at a young age, and learning about God at a young age, and uh, having certain uh, things just kind of just kind of growing uh, into that. But one of the struggles that I had, um, and this was just part of just the general culture, is that God was very familiar and normal in a, in, not in necessarily a great way. Um, and, and, and I began to, I mean, I just, I, he became kind of presumed there wasn't necessarily, um, it, it, there just, I don't know, looking back, it, it was, you know, God, Jesus, the Bible. Um, it, that is like, it is as normal as getting the mail every day or putting the check marks on the back of the offering envelope um, as you went. And, and God was kind of this thing that we did and you should do it too. Uh, and then in college, I went through some rebellious years, and I had a pretty intense uh, encounter with God in my junior year. Um, and, and some of this, hear me, some of this familiarity when you're bringing up with your children to teach the stories of God and, and to become familiar with God, uh, but the danger uh, and part of the growth of that is to enter into like this genuine covenant relationship with God, knowing him and being in his his presence. And when I was a junior in, in college, um, I, uh, I had some of this rebellious stuff, but then I had this pretty intense encounter with God. And using some of the good that God had, had, uh, had put in me at a young age, uh, and then maybe growing me past that, uh, had this really powerful encounter. And then I began to read a lot more about just like the transcendence of God and his bigness and his glory and the big lofty God is to the praise of his glorious grace and began to read all these 
big things. And, and uh, the way that it kind of snapped at me was this view of God that he was... Um, that he was big and powerful and glorious, and we bowed down at him, and the bigger he got, uh, the more dust of the ground that I got. And for a season, that was good and that was helpful. As God got big and glorious, I saw just how, uh, how sinful I was. Um, but as I've con- kind of continued to work this out in my own life, it it started to even kind of leave me feeling that God was so glorious and so majestic and so far away and so kind of unapproachable. And I'm not, I'm not, hear me, I'm not speaking against this view of God as glorious and big, but he almost became an overemphasis on that, kind of became God is big and glorious and you don't, you don't get into the back room And for a guy that struggles with self-loathing, already feeling pretty low in the dust, there wasn't a whole lot lower that I could go. And that began to kind of heap up various levels of shame and, and apathy. And I had learned a lot about the God who will by no means clear the guilty, um, but that my intimacy with him was tied to just how guilty I could find myself. And I think that's an incomplete picture of what we see of the God in Scripture. Moses throws himself at the mercy of this glorious and transcendent God, and what he finds is a God who is present, who is there, who is abiding, who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. If you imagine what Moses must be thinking in this moment, what's he going to find? Uh, He stood in the presence of God, the Holy One, And then he hears that the people are worshiping false idols, um, disobeying the first two commandments and probably working on a whole lot more. And uh, they have just made a false idol or at least a false version of Yahweh. God is pretty fed up. He's telling Moses that the and the people of Israel, that they're going to leave Mount Sinai. He's going to give them the promised land, but he's not going with them. His presence is not going to go with him. And Moses intercedes, and Moses pleads with God, if you're not going with us, then I don't want to go. In other words, your, your presence is greater than, than the promise of land. To abide in the presence of God is where we begin to find and experience not just this glorious, powerful God as Mount Sinai is the, the, filled with the glory of God, and it's kind of awe-inspiring, but it's also where we've come to know and experience this God who is patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Is he glorious? Absolutely. But he's also near and he's also present and he's also abiding with his people. And a lot of these things that I've been learning more recently and practicing, these various spiritual rhythms and practice, they have a lot to do with just kind of abiding in the presence of God finding where I am seeing God present in my day and where I am forfeiting that. And these have been transforming my relationship with God Um, as I look for his presence in the everyday aspects of life. It's mellowed me out on some of the things that I was so, had to be so precise uh, on. Uh, It has warred heavily against my shame 
and maybe some of my, well, definitely my sinful tendencies, but where repentance was just this kind of self-loathing and heaping more and more shame. And that had kept much of my life hidden. But this has helped me to know God's transcendence, not as indifference, indifferent and untouchable, but as near. Maybe even say incarnate. And believe me, there's a whole lot more work to do. <laughs> um, but I'm finding myself not trying to dig into the dust as much, but in kind of a measure of recovery, not, not repenting, but beginning to actually enjoy this relationship with the God who is present. Uh, I've heard, you've probably heard a lot of deconversion stories lately, right? There's a there's a lot going on of people deconverting, people who are uh, deconstructing their faith. Um, and uh, there are some very sad and, and legitimate heartbreaking reasons behind that, while some, why some people are going through that. Some people, it's, it, it's a trend right now and it's kind of popular to, to question everything. Um, but as I hear stories of people who are leaving, quote, leaving the faith or, or, or questioning the faith, very few people have I heard are actually saying, I want to leave basking in the presence of God. Most people that I've heard are saying, are, are, their, their war is against this kind of tradition or established structure of religion um, that they've grown up with these belief structures about God. It's all they've known. Some of these traditions aren't biblical at all. Some of them have been abused. Some of them the church has not done a very good job. And the church, if the church should be anything, it should be a, a place where, where uh, the, one of the best things we can tell the world is we were wrong, right? That's the litmus test for getting in is I was wrong and found mercy. Um, But it's easier to just kind of throw everything out and just say, you know what, I'm walking away. Either it's easier to either hunker down and say, no, I'm gonna, I just need to fight harder against all these things, or to just throw out everything and uh, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater than it is to actually dig through the rubble and find in these deconstructed messes the actual presence of God. Because here's the thing, that's hard. Abiding is hard. Tradition, writ, script, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you don't do this, this, or this, that's easy. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy. <laughs> it's not totally easy. It could be easy. Um, walking away and throwing everything out and just saying, you know what, I'm done with that. Not that that's easy. I don't want to, like, pretend that that's, I've sat with people and wept. That is... That is a hard thing to do, but it can seem like that is the answer. You know, I just need to get rid of everything. Abiding is hard. 
Abiding doesn't give us answers. Abiding doesn't, it, it gives us the presence of God. The blessing to Abram was the presence of God. And abiding actually gives us, it's not necessarily success. It's not a quick answer. It's not what we want that's going to fix everything. It is hearing from God, I am here. And let me encourage you, if you have friends or family members or even you yourself, this, I've shared two deconstruction stories that God is continuing to lead me through. Stories are long. God is good and God is faithful. Um, but what God has promised his people is his presence. I shared uh, last week the common rule. Uh, he quotes a guy named Ken Myers who's a cultural critic. And what he says is, what Ken Myers says is, the kind of atheism we experience in America today is not a conclusion but a mood. We can't disrupt it with an argument. We must disrupt it with presence. E-N-C-E. I hate ruining a, good, ruining a good moment that I have to always have to say which presence I'm talking about. Not gifts. Present. To be present. We can't simply be a people equipped with good arguments. We need to be a people who experience the presence of God, which is what we are always called to be. And, and, and listen, the doctrine and the precision has fed that all the more, to bask in the presence of God. And so we see this God, this God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love, and we see his patient. Uh, he is patient and merciful. Um, and culturally for us, we kind of get that, right? I mean, we, there's, there's some two sides, but God is love. Yeah, we get that. In Moses' day, that was, that was not uh, the norm. Deities, gods, were much more uh, on the judgment side of things. Because most deities were formed in the image of the emperor or the king or the pharaoh or whoever, um, and their vengeance both warred against other, the will of, of these small g gods was to destroy other nations, but also you could use enough rules in there to kind of keep the people compliant, right? But this was, judgment was certainly um, part of what most people knew a god to be. And we can see the tension here that God will by no means clear the guilty. His judgment will carry on to the third and fourth generation. Um, now, we're going to hear and see this differently than they do, and it's not fair for us to read the Bible through an ethnocentric uh, centric lens and bring our own um, stuff on it. We have to see how they understood it. And so judgment was normal in that day, but what God is making known here, he too will judge the guilty, but his judgment is not a threat. It's basically, it comes against those whose hearts are hard toward him. The judgment that comes on Israel is when they try to remake him in their image over and over and over again. And that, their sin, will impact the children and the children's children. The hearts will be hardened. God's grace, patience, and mercy can overcome and redeem any sin but hard-heartedness, callousness, pride, indifference, self-righteousness. These are all ways of saying the same thing. I will be my own God. 
a determination that says, I will either pay my own price or I will do what I want. God demonstrates make known, and makes known that that will impact generation upon generation and that the guilty will receive judgment. What happens and what continues to happen throughout the story of Israel is that they have recreated God in their own image. And they decide they want to worship the God that they want to worship. And they have made him into a form that they know. And one thing that we have to be aware, when God calls us to repentance, repentance is not, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, can I, am, is that enough? Can I go keep going back to doing what I wanted to do? Um, God is not to be reshaped and reformed into what we want and what we like. I've shared this before. If somebody were to come to me and say, Trey, I know who you are. You're Italian. I always want, I always want to be Italian. I'm not Italian. You're Italian and you tan really easily. I always wanted to tan really easily. Don't do that either. Um, you're, you're, you're shorter and, and you're thick like a tank. And you love the Cubs. My response to that would be, depart from me, I never knew you. Right? We don't get to pick what we want God to be. To worship him is to know him as he is. And that's not to, sometimes we say that, to worship God is to know him as he is, and all we do is emphasize the judgment that he has on all you people. It is to know his full name. God is a God of mercy and of justice. And he has not only made it known how to worship him, what it looks like to follow him and trust him, but he's made it known how we are to worship him in our relationships with others. The the second half of the Ten Commandments, how we live, giving dignity and value to other people, not stealing from them, not dehumanizing them, not lusting after who they are or what they want, not dehumanizing others. God has made himself known as he is, And he's called Israel, you will be my treasured possession as long as you worship the the God who who revealed himself to you. And they don't. And God's, the the judgment is not just because uh, God is up there going, I'll show you. This is bad for them. It is bad for the world. Uh, This is not who they were designed to be. And what God shows is we actually... God gives warning in Psalm 115 that we actually become that which we worship. For ruin or for restoration, we become that which we worship. Psalm 115 says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And then in verse 9, he says, Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. When, we're, when we worship God, we are able to pursue and spend time in his presence and bask in his presence. We become more like him. We're more conformed to the image of Jesus, how we see the world, the purpose of our lives, the joy of our lives. Our selfishness and self-defensiveness become less and 
less, those voices get smaller and smaller. And shame, praise God, loses its power slowly but surely. And our joy and our life in Christ being fully alive becomes more and more. But when our hearts are hardened, when we don't trust his mercy, when we worship our efforts or our rules, our freedoms, our influence, our power, our stuff, our money, our security, our self-rightness, then spiritually speaking, what happens there? Whether we're religious or not, these people are being very religious. But what happens there is we have eyes, but we can't see. We have ears, but we can't hear. We grow more defensive, more protective, more hidden, more hardened. And what we see with Israel right off the bat is it's not simply their behavior that repulses God, it's their hardened hearts. Their behavior reveals that they are worshiping false gods, quite literally, quite literally worshiping false gods, right? This is not metaphor. They are quite literally bowing down to a false god that they made. Anne Lamott says this, you know you've created God in your own image when he hates all the same people you hate. There's a scene in the not-so-distant future here that's going to take place. Moses has died. Uh, he has gone to be with his fathers, and Joshua is instated as the new Moses. God says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And Joshua is going to go into the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised, and he's about to conquer the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are bad people. Okay, They are bad people. Uh, the worship of their gods, has uh, they, they, are, they are nasty. Um, they are murderers. Uh, and in worshiping their gods, it calls from some uh, explicit, perverse, and dehumanizing sexual acts. It calls for child sacrifice. Uh, they're, they're is not, they are not good. They are a blight on the land. And God is going to exercise judgment over them. And yet, and yet, at the end of Joshua 5, as Joshua is coming across the river, standing outside of Jericho, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the man said, no. But I am a commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals for your, from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy, and Joshua did so. In other words, even in this great battle and judgment that is about to happen to the wicked people of Canaan, the commander of the army of the Lord does not say, I am on Israel's side. What he says is, you had better be on God's side. All right, most of the Hebrew scriptures are this tension between God's mercy and grace and his judgment. His presence being with the people uh, and then them going after other gods and making other gods in their images, in, his, uh, in their own image. Becoming like the other nations. That was the great temptation. You're going to go amongst the other nations and you're going to see what they do and you're going to want to become like them. And I'm telling you, don't do it. 
And we're going to see this kind of next week a little bit more as we see the installation of a king. They wanted to become like the other nations have a king, and God's like, all right. And then through the prophets, God proclaims over and over again that he's going to judge Israel for their wickedness, for turning away from him, from their hardened hearts. But the reason God often withholds his judgment for a long time, his immediate judgment, is because there is a righteous intercessor. Somebody who stands, who is in right standing before God, who comes before him and pleads on behalf of the people. God, remember your promise. Remember who you are. Remember your love for your people. Remember what you have accomplished for them. You are good and patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And yes, there is judgment to the third and fourth generation, but your love and mercy is being shown to thousands. And God, because he is mercy, because he is merciful and gracious, he relents. And so Moses stands in God's presence and pleads to God on behalf of the people of Israel. Israel, in fact, what Israel was to be was a people who not only trusted God, but who stood as intercessors on behalf of the nations, pleading to God on their behalf. And then when God would call, when their hearts were revealed, when their behavior revealed what they were worshiping, God would call out in to repent, or the prophets would call to repentance, and then the true motive of the heart was made known in the way that we would respond. Would the people be reminded of the character and grace of God and repent and turn to him? Or would their hearts be hard, continuing to do what they wanted to do? There is a greater and truer Moses, an intercessor who stands before God completely righteous and pleads to God on our behalf. And the call is not simply that we would feel like worms and fall in the dirt and feel even worse about ourselves in the glory of God, but that our hearts would actually grow in the desire to bask more and more in his presence. And if and when he calls us to repentance, we see it, it's hard, but it's a joyful reminder of what we are forfeiting and what we have. Moses stood before God on behalf of the people of Israel. But, but this is our story, and ultimately Moses' story as well. And you, you can join with me if you know it, but I'm going to give pauses just so you know. But this is our story. Before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So what does that lead to? My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. 
No tongue can bid me thence depart. So then what does this look like as it begins to get lived out? Here's what happens. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Now here is life in Christ. Behold him there, the Perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. One more time, church. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood my life is hid with christ on high with christ my savior and my god with christ my savior and my god a god merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, invites us to stand in his presence to know that he is with his people and he delights to be with his people. This week, uh, here's your assignment. Get a good hymn stuck in your mind. Uh, Charles Wesley used to say that nobody walks out humming the sermon. Um, you walk out humming the music, which is why I'm grateful that Eric is, and, and Darden are, are fairly particular about the songs that we sing because we sing our theology. But I want you to get a good song stuck in your mind this week and I want you to sing it often. And this is the beauty, this, I'm gonna tell you this, this is the beauty of wearing masks to uh, like grocery store and stuff like that. You can sing it the entire time and nobody will look at you any funnier than they already do. Um, and, and I, the mask is a helpful cover up for me because if I get a song in my head, I'm still singing it uh, as I walk throughout 
you know, Walmart or Sam's or wherever, and um, the mask just prevents the funny looks. I want you to get a song stuck in your head, and I want it to just ruminate there throughout the week. A good one. And if you need help, uh, Eric will pick one out for you. Um, but, uh, and just let the presence of God, the truth of who he is. This is not like, this is not a hit to good, solid doctrine. This is not a slight to the glory of God, but this is the complete picture of God. Yes, he is big and he is glorious and he is above all things and he makes himself known in thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai and yet he is intimate and he is close and he is personal and he is abounding in steadfast love and grace and mercy and invites us to abide with him and to be in his presence. This is the character of God. This is his name. This is not only what he does, this is who he is. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have pleaded to God on our behalf and that we could even stand in his presence. And certainly we are called to repent. But sometimes I I wonder if we need to rethink what repentance means. It is a turning and basking in your glory, not just feeling bad and guilty and self-loathing. Your desire and your want, your call is to worship and enjoy you and enjoy your presence. That our hearts and our eyes would be turned to you and that we would become like that which we worship. Full of grace and mercy and abounding in steadfast love. Continue to work in us and on us and then by your mercy through us for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.